Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 11 recounts the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we will begin this morning by looking at the introduction to that story, the first 16 verses. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of God. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after, he said, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. I was sitting in my home office on Thursday, snowed in for the day, and watching the snow come down heavier and heavier as the day went along. And I was working on this message, and I was reminded of a pretty traumatic experience that I had when I was a teenager. I had just gotten my driver's license, and I was driving home from basketball practice late in the evening one night in the dark, and it was snowing pretty well when I left, and I was a little nervous about getting home. You have to understand that I grew up in a really small town, but I didn't really grow up in town. I grew up six miles outside of town in the woods, not literally in the woods, in a house in the woods, but... um, (laughs) So, and it was a country road, a real country road between my little town and the house I grew up in, my home. And so I am driving in the snow and it's getting worse and worse as I go. And I was only a two or three miles outside of town. And it literally, and I mean literally, turned into a blizzard. I don't know if you've really been in a real blizzard or not, but literal whiteout. I could not see anything. With the headlights of my car, in the headlights, all I saw was white. And there was so much snow on the ground, I lost all the reference points. I didn't know where the road was. I didn't know where the sides of the road were. I didn't know where the ditches were. I didn't know where the trees were. I couldn't see anything. And I was really, really scared. I slowed down a lot. But I also didn't want to get stranded out there in the middle of nowhere. You have to understand, this is really the middle of nowhere. No houses around or anything. And 
So I'm inching my way forward, trying to figure out what I should do when I have no reference points to, to guide me at all. All of a sudden, through the thick snow, I saw two little red beacons, which were taillights on another car. Some car must have pulled out onto the road in front of me. And that was all I could see, white and two little red lights. And those little red lights led me all the way home. I don't know who was driving. I don't know why I trusted them to stay on the road when I couldn't see the road. (laughs) To this day, I'm very open to the possibility those were just two angels with red lights (laughs) leading me through the blizzard to get me home. And I've often thought about that night, how scared I was, how close to death I thought I was at times. And I've thought about that and I've thought, it's such a good analogy for what it's like sometimes when you get blindsided by tragedy or a crisis, that you get this blizzard of emotions, fear or grief, and you just, you're so disoriented, you lose all your points of reference. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the loss of a spouse. Maybe it's the death of a child. Maybe it's It's a broken relationship. Whatever it is, you just lose your reference points, and you're desperate to have something lead you through the blizzard of emotions that you're going through. You need taillights, so to speak, beacons, something that you can trust that will get you through it to get you safely home. I don't know if you noticed, but chapter 11 of John's Gospel begins with a family suddenly thrust into a crisis. It says simply in verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Now as we read along, we find out that that's a bit of an understatement, that he was ill. He was actually on his deathbed, severely ill. And this is a family that knew Jesus very well and that Jesus knew very well. Matter of fact, the Gospels don't tell us a lot about this family, but what we do know about them is they must have had a very special unusually intimate uh, friendship with Jesus. You'll know Mary and Martha, the two sisters in the story. You'll know them from Luke's account where Jesus came to stay at their house, which indicates some closeness there. And as Martha was busy preparing uh, meals for Jesus and his disciples, she was upset, you remember, because Uh, Martha was preparing in the kitchen. She was upset because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and just soaking in his teaching. She expected Jesus to rebuke Mary for being lazy and not helping. and Instead, Jesus lovingly rebuked Martha for being concerned about lesser things and not loving the things that Mary loved. We get another indication of the intimacy in the relationship by looking at verse 2 because there, it's interesting, John refers to a story that he hasn't actually told yet. Because he will tell the story in chapter beginning of chapter 12 about when Mary came and anointed his feet with a very expensive oil and then wiped her, his feet with her hair. That's a story that was well known. By the way, it's not the same story that Tom preached on last week. That was a different woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. This is Mary. And the, um, it just indicates, first of all, the love that Mary had for Jesus and the intimacy of the relationship that they had. But John 
he's writing, of course, his gospel much later than the other gospels are written, so he's assuming that people know the story of Mary and Martha, that they know that this, this great relationship that Jesus had with this family. And so he alludes to that story to illustrate it. And what we're dealing with here is the threat of death. Matter of fact, we know that death was imminent. We don't know if Mary and Martha and Lazarus knew this, but Jesus knew that death was imminent. And so again, this is one of these sudden crises that brings on a blizzard of emotions. I don't know if you've gone through the loss of your parents. I've lost both my parents from this life. They've gone on to be with the Lord quite a while ago now. But I remember still to this day how it felt to first of all get the word about in my mother's case, the cancer that was going to take her, and in my father's case, the deadly illness that took him. When I first heard the news, you get that, like I said, a blizzard of emotion, grief, fear, anxiety. And then when you get the call that it's time for the family to gather, because the hour's near, a blizzard of emotion, a loss of reference points. I've often said that losing parents, I think, is, is one of the hardest things to go through because they're pillars in your life, things that are supposed to always be there, you know, and all of a sudden they're not. Well, Mary and Martha cry out to Jesus. Let me just point that out, that that's a habit of the soul that the believer needs to have, that when the crisis hits, you cry out to Jesus. A habit of the soul that you develop long before the crisis hits, so that it is your first knee-jerk reaction when tragedy comes. And so they send a message to Jesus, but Jesus, as we remember from the end of chapter 10, has left Jerusalem, driven out of Jerusalem under the threat of death, actually, by the Jewish leadership, and has gone up into the wilderness to the north, probably about three or four days away for a messenger to take the message. Well, let's ask the question then. Here's the situation, something we can identify with. A sudden crisis, a blizzard of emotions. What are the reference points? What do we focus upon to get us through the crisis? What are our comforts? What can we focus our attention on? What will not be moved? What will not be shaken when everything else seems to be falling apart? Well, there's two, just conveniently with my metaphor, two focus, foci that I would point to in this story. I think, as John tells it, first of all, the first taillight to look for in the blizzard of a crisis is the love of Christ. John makes that point very blatant, doesn't he? Do you notice verse 5? Right in the midst of telling the story in a very factual way, he throws in what he considers to be a very important observation. He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He wants the whole story to be understood in light of that tremendous truth. Jesus loved these two sisters and this brother. He loved them deeply. It's important to John that we get that fact because we need to interpret everything else in the story in light of that. Because some elements of the story may not seem to fit. may not be obvious in all the circumstances. And that's true in our lives so much of the time. It's not always obvious in our circumstances that Jesus Christ loves us. 
That's because we don't know that Jesus loves us based on circumstances, do we? We know that Jesus Christ loves us based on two things. The Word of God, and more specifically, the cross. That's how we know that Jesus loves us. That's the firm ground. That's the thing that can't be shaken. That Jesus Christ has died for all of your sins if you have put your faith in him. And therefore, no matter what your circumstances are, there is no condemnation in your circumstances. He is not angry with you. He's not punishing you. He loves you. And you are where you are no matter where you are because he loves you. And he is with you. That is your confidence. How do you know that? Because the cross happened. Sin was paid for. Wrath was turned away. And you were saved. And you belong to him for eternity. And his love for you is based on what he has done for you, not what you have done for him. That cannot be shaken. Now Mary and Martha did not know the full love of the cross yet. But they had begun to know of the love of Christ. And they were confident in it. It was the one beacon that they looked to in this crisis. And so they do what you would expect them to do in light of that. Verse 3, they send a message and say to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That was the whole basis of their plea. He whom you love is ill. I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that they didn't actually make a request. They didn't say, come quickly, Jesus, he whom you love is ill. They didn't say, come and heal him, Jesus, he whom you love is ill. They were so confident in the love of Christ, all they had to do was make him aware of the need. And that's how you respond to people that love you in your life, isn't it? That you just make them aware of the need and you're confident that they will do what they can to help you. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but if you ever have ever had to go to the government for help, generally what your experience is, you have to fill out a five-page document that spells out in great detail what your need is and all the justification for why the government should help you. But if you go to a family member, for instance, if I go to my wife and I say to her, man, my back really hurts from all the snow shoveling I've done this week, it's just enough to say that. I know that she'll start to mother me right away. If I complain about my cough, she'll run to the medicine cabinet and get me the cough medicine because I'm confident of her love. All I have to do is mention the need. And so the sisters say, Jesus, Jesus, the one whom you love, he's ill. I don't know what you do to prepare for tragedy in your life. We all seem to have some way of preparing for tragedy. Some of us, I think it's relative to how young you are, but the younger ones of us maybe just block it out and don't even think about it. But the older you get, the more you've been through tragedy and you start to think, well, I, I need to prepare. So you just set aside money or you, you uh, get insurance or you go to the doctor regularly, whatever. There's many things you do to try to prepare for tragedy. I remember back around the year 2000, remember the big Y2K thing when um, the whole fear was that there was this glitch in the computers that the corporate computers and government computers weren't going to be able to make the transition to January 1st, year 2000, and it was going to, all the computers were going to crash, and it was going to be total uh, chaos in society, and all peace and order would break down, and everybody would be fighting for their, for their own provisions, and 
I remember even Christians who were building bunkers in their backyard and putting six months supply of food back there and, and also six months supply of ammunition and guns to prepare. You know, we like to prepare for tragedy, but really we always tend to leave out the most important preparation for tragedy, which is to dig deep into the love of Christ, to develop that habit of the soul that turns to him, to be reassured that no matter what happens, he does work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In Ephesians, listen to how Paul prays for the church, for Christians. Just listen to the words of his prayer. What does he want most for believers? Listen to what he prays for. He says in verse 14, Ephesians 3, 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is your best preparation for whatever comes down the road in your life, is that you know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God, the love of God in Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Now is the time, in the time of comfort and ease, to be digging deep into the reality Dig deep into the gospel. Dig deep into the word of God. Know the love of God. And what you'll find is when you dig deep into the love of God, you dig deep into the love of Christ, is it's not the kind of weak love of God that our culture talks about. Every religion, when you're suffering, when you're going through a hard time, every religion will come to you and try to say, you know, we know God loves you. He's hurting along with you. He, He cares about you. But what you find when you go dig deep into the love of Christ is it's not that kind of a weak kind of love where, where, where Christ is up in heaven kind of wringing his hands and empathizing and sympathizing but not able to do anything about it. This is a strong love that we're talking about and that brings me to the second light, second beacon, second taillight in the blizzard of emotion when tragedy hits and that's the purpose of Christ. You've got the love of Christ and the purpose of Christ, two unshakable things that will get you through. There are two statements here that we have trouble putting together. In verse 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then in verse 6, it says, So, or therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How do you put those two things together? John consciously puts it right in front of us. Jesus loved this family deeply, so, therefore, he waited two days. How do we understand that? Why does Jesus react in the exact opposite way we would expect if he really loved this family? Why doesn't he jump up right away and rush to Bethany? Well, it's because Jesus was always purpose-driven in his ministry. Always purpose-driven in his ministry. Always aware that he had a clear mission from the Father to accomplish a mission that was according to the Father's plan. 
You see this in verses 8 and 9. Kind of an odd little uh, interjection that Jesus puts here. It's when Jesus finally says, after two days wait, he says, okay, let's go. Let's go to Bethany. Let's go to, to Lazarus. And the disciples say, you know, are you sure you want to go back? Because Bethany was just, just outside the city of Jerusalem, and they had just threatened to kill him in Jerusalem. And so they're like, are you sure you want to go back there? They were fearful of what awaited them in that region. And Jesus responds by saying, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now, a little bit of background to help you understand why he says this. A day, when we, when we, we use the word day in our culture, it can mean a lot of different things. And, and, but in Jewish culture, a day was the time when the sun was shining. That means that in the summer, when days are longer, as we say, when there's more sunlight, they always divided the amount of sunlight in a, on a, in a given day, given 24-hour period, they always divided that sunlight into 12 equal parts. And so a summer day was actually considerably longer than a winter day. It was when the sun was shining. So, for instance... In the winter, when, when the sun in the sky is in the sky the least amount of time, an hour to a Jewish person was about 50 minutes to us. But in the summer, it was about 70 minutes because you're dividing up more sunlight by 12 times. Well, that's helpful to understand what Jesus is saying here because Jesus is saying, while the sun is shining, it's still daytime. While the light of the world is in the world, the sun is still shining and there is still work to be done, but there is an end of the day coming, and darkness will come, and the work can't be done. He said something very similar back in chapter 9. It helps to understand it. Go back to chapter 9 and uh, verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. God the Father has set the time. God the Father has given the mission. And Jesus Christ, you've seen it all through this gospel, he stays on mission. He knows that the Father is controlling the time. And Jesus is not in a rush from a human standpoint. Jesus is not going to accomplish his mission better if he rushes to Bethany to raise Lazarus. And avoid, or to keep him from even dying. That's not going to make his mission more successful. Likewise, the Jewish leadership are not going to thwart or frustrate or shorten his mission by putting him to death prematurely. We've already seen how Jesus will not allow that to happen. He is on a mission. And that is a taillight to us at the blizzard of any crisis that we're going through. He has a good purpose. He will fulfill his work and he will do it in the best way. And sometimes that involves us waiting. That's because Jesus' first objective, he has two objectives in his mission. First objective is to display the glory of God. He mentions that in verse 4. Go back to verse 4. This illness, the illness of Lazarus, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It is not the mission of Jesus Christ to make us happy and healthy and wealthy and prosperous in this life. That may, in his grace, be part of what he does in our life, but that's not his mission. 
He's not promising here that Lazarus would recover from illness. He's saying that the purpose of Lazarus' deadly illness is to display the glory of God in his life. That's the purpose. It's the same thing he said about the man born blind. Doesn't that sound familiar back from chapter 9? There, the, the, the disciples asked him, who, was, who sinned to cause this blindness, that he was, this man was born blind? And Jesus said, it's not either that he sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Everything that Jesus Christ does in our life is to display the glory of God through what he himself is doing in our lives. And our chief end is to glorify God, to display his power and his love active in our lives before the world. And very often that means that we don't get immediate deliverance from whatever crisis or suffering or trial that we're going through. His glory shines most brightly, most often, in our weakness. And that brings me to Jesus' second objective in his mission, which is to increase the faith of his disciples. Second objective, first objective is to bring glory, to display the glory of God in our weakness. The second objective is to increase our faith. And one of the greatest tests of our faith is when he delays when he waits, when he allows the crisis to go on, when he allows the suffering and uncertainty to go on. I mentioned my mother and my father. They were married for almost 50 years. My mother passed away first, and she passed away when they'd been married 49 years. For 40 of those 49 years of their marriage, she prayed faithfully, persistently, perseveringly, every day that my father would come to truly know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. For 40 of those 49 years. And God didn't answer that prayer until my father was in his 60s and in retirement, but he did. He made my mother wait 40 years to see an answer to a prayer that she wanted more than any, than any other prayer that she offered in her life. When I think of the Psalms, when you're suffering, if you're going through a trial, if you're facing a crisis, go to the Psalms. Always go to the Psalms, but especially in crisis. But if you go to the Psalms, one thing you're going to find out, so many of them were written for people in times of trial and suffering, and what you're going to find out is so often they keep saying, coming back to us and saying, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. Not because the Lord is slow or late, because it's what's good for you and for his glory. It's good to wait upon the Lord, to have our faith grow. And growing in our faith is the most important thing that God is going to do in your life. God cares more about you growing in faith than he does about your health, he does about your bank account, he does about your relationships. He wants you to grow in faith. It's the greatest gift he can give you. The best request, the best prayer request that the disciples ever made of Jesus is when they came to him and simply said, increase our faith. Pray that to the Father and he will answer it through Christ every time. After a two-day delay, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
Of course, as they usually do, they took him too literally. <laughs> they said, hey, it's a good thing if he sleeps. It might get better if he sleeps. And Jesus says, no, again, have you never heard of a metaphor? No, he says, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died. But he goes on to say, listen carefully, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Really important you pick up on that. For your sake. Why did he delay two days? For the faith of the twelve disciples to grow. For the faith of Martha and Mary and Lazarus to grow. He waited. He delayed. So that you may believe. That's what's most important. Jesus was not glad. Jesus did not rejoice in the illness. He hates illness. Jesus did not rejoice in death. He hates death. It's our great enemy. He rejoiced that in this trial, in this crisis, there was great opportunity for his disciples to grow in faith. Let me remind you of what Paul said in Romans 12. Listen carefully. He's talking about how we measure ourselves against each other. And he says this in Romans 12, verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Did you get that? How do you measure your success in your mission in life? It's measured by the amount of faith that God has built in you. We leave all of our fancy titles and accomplishments in the world at the door when we come into the church because in the church, we're measured by the degree of our faith. Our faith in Jesus Christ. I remember when my mom was dying of cancer. During that nine to ten months it took for her to, to completely succumb to that disease, I had a niece uh, that I grew up with. She was almost like a sister to me. She grew up just down the road from us. And uh, she was like a sister because she was actually nine months older than I was. Think about that. I, her, she, she was born nine months before I was, but she was my niece. She was my oldest sister's daughter. And we grew up like best friends, like brother and sister. And when I was a, a teenager and was searching spiritually, she was a real influence on me. She was a what I consider to be this real dynamic on-fire Christian. And she took me to retreats and got me into context where I could hear the gospel, and she had a big influence on me. Well, shortly after that, she got into a bad marriage, got into some sin, rebelled against her family, rebelled against the Lord, and she was away from the Lord for almost 10 years after that until my mother was going through the fight with cancer. And through watching my mother fight that fight in faith, and through the influence of the family gathering around her, all the other true believers in the family, she gave her life to the Lord for, the, for real and truly got saved and got on fire for the Lord. And she's been with the Lord and growing ever since. I'll never forget, very shortly before my mom died, she said to me, you know, I don't know what God's doing in this whole situation, but if nothing else good comes out of this, except my granddaughter coming to know Christ, then that makes it worth it. Makes it worth it. Because she understood that faith in Christ is the most important thing. And for her, faith was about to become sight. 
And so the next best thing was for her granddaughter to come to know Christ. Because faith is that important. More important than any of the suffering. When the blizzards of tragedy and crisis come in life, there are two beacons, two taillights in the blizzard that you can look at that will guide you safely through when all the other reference points in life fade away. The love of Christ and the mission and purpose of Christ. When it comes to crises and tragedies and sufferings, there's three kinds of grace that God can give to his people. He always gives you grace in relation to trials and crisis and tragedy and suffering. He always gives you grace. There's three kinds of grace he can give. He can give you restraining grace. In other words, he puts a hedge around you and doesn't allow it to come into your life. Many of you are experiencing that kind of restraining grace today. You're in a time of comfort and ease and health and prosperity. You're experiencing restraining grace. Or he can give you the second kind of grace, which is delivering grace, where he allows, he puts down the hedge temporarily. He allows the trial, the suffering, the tragedy, the crisis to come into your life so that you may grow in faith. And then he delivers you from it. And in that deliverance, you experience that delivering grace from Christ. But then there's that third kind of grace, which is called sustaining grace, where he gives you the faith and the strength to persevere through the suffering and the trial and the tragedy. And it's that last one that brings him the most glory. As you lean on him, as I was, I want to close by reading just a couple of quotes from an article. As while I'm preparing this message in God's providence, I read this article online, and there are a few quotes. It's, it was written by a woman, and she didn't go into any detail, but she talked about a lifelong, just relentless string of sufferings in her life. She was, she had severe health issues when she was chi- a child. She spent a lot of her childhood in the hospital. When she was a teenager, she got. Uh, abused in many different ways and when she got uh, married she had to go through several miscarriages and the death of a child an actual death of a, of a child who had already been born and then she was eventually came into more serious health issues as an adult and then her husband abandoned her and this is someone who has suffered so much more than most of us in this room would ever imagine suffering and then she writes this article about how to depend upon grace and I just want to fit in so well with with this passage, I wanted to to share just a few quotes here as I close. This is what she writes. She says, This sustaining grace is what upheld me. It revived me when I was weak. It drove me to my knees. And unlike delivering grace, which once received, inadvertently moved me to greater independence from God, sustaining grace kept me tethered to him. I needed it every day. It was new every morning. Over time, I realize I have an inexplicable joy, not in my circumstances, but in the God who cares so fiercely for me. I found that this joy, which is often birthed out of suffering, can never be taken away. It only gets richer over time. My circumstances cannot diminish it. It produces lasting fruit like endurance, character, and hope. It draws me to God in breathtaking ways. It achieves a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison." I still pray earnestly for deliverance, for the many things I long to see changed, both in my life and in the world. That is right. It's biblical. We need to bring our requests to God. 
But much as I long for deliverance, for delivering grace, I see the exquisite blessing in sustaining grace. It's not about getting what I want. It's about God giving me what I desperately need himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace today, for your restraining grace, your delivering grace, and most of all, your sustaining grace. For anyone here this morning that is going through a tragedy, a trial, a crisis, who has lost a sense of direction or reference points, I pray, Lord, that Christ, the glory of Christ, would shine brightly through his word, that your spirit would draw them to Christ, that they would just bask and bathe in the love of Christ, the love of Christ that works all things together for good. May we trust in his character. May we trust in his finished work at the cross. May we trust in his plan to bring all things to perfection and to bless us for eternity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.